Well, welcome, church. Just turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 1. First Peter 4, uh, verse 1. And we will read to verse 6. I'll just give you a couple seconds to get everything turned. And you can stand. Very good. Barcelos, you are trained well. <laughs> Alright, so 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the, the, rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Let's pray. Lord, we have your written word here, and we only read it so that we get to know you, who is the living word. I ask that you uh, fill me with your spirit, and may your spirit fill this place, and we experience your presence here today through what was written 2,000 years ago. And we look forward to our time together. Amen. Normally I give some kind of decent or lengthy introduction. Uh, today I'm not going to. We're just going to waste no time and jump right in. Look at verse 1 with me. Notice that the beginning of the verse starts with a therefore. Whenever you see this word therefore beginning a, a verse, you know that the author is going to further substantiate a claim that they had previously made. It's a linking word. So in our case then, we have to go back to an argument that Peter has been making over the last two weeks in our sermons. And this is an argument back in verse 18 concerning Jesus and the unjust treatment that he received while he was on earth. And Peter's main point has been that despite the fact that Jesus had been unjustly treated and suffered in the flesh, uh, this was not to be seen as his defeat. And it was not to be seen as something outside of God's will. And actually, quite the opposite, he was actually victorious in what he accomplished. Remember last week he looked at his victory in the spiritual realm especially. So it's with these thoughts in mind that Peter reminds us as a Christian that we are to, therefore, suffer in the flesh the same way he did. And he actually says here, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. So we're to have the same purpose as Christ in suffering unjustly in this world, if that's what it means for our lives. And just like Christ was victorious because of our faith in Him, we will ultimately stand in glory with Him victorious as well. So just as this was Christ's reality, it is to be ours. And we're to adopt the same attitude towards suffering that He had. 
Now, Peter provides a purpose and motivation for us, though, if we adopt this attitude. We pick this up in the second half of verse 1. He says, Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Now, what does Peter mean here by ceasing from sin? How does someone cease from sin by arming themselves with the same purpose as Christ? Well, first I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean this, that you won't sin again. And it doesn't mean that your propensity or desire to sin has been completely removed from you just because of the new forgiveness you found in Jesus Christ. So it's not, it's not like this idea that with forgiveness comes this, this removal of the potential to sin ever again. To cease, some, 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 oh, <laughs> to cease from sin is something quite different. And I think there's a clue given to us in our text in verse 2. You see, he says, So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So what Peter does here is he contrasts two ways in which a believer has the option to live. A believer can either live in the flesh, pursuing the lusts of men, Detailed, which is a detailed list given in verse 3. Um, a person still has the potential to pursue lust, uh, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and so on. Or a person can go on living for the will of God. So what this tells us then is ceasing from, from sin has something to do with rejecting the old way of life and adopting a new way of life, adopting a life dedicated to serving the Lord. So it's rejecting a lifestyle ruled out by one's passions and desires and, uh, and embracing and, adop and adopting God's way. So when a person fully submits to God in this way, this will result then in them suffering in the flesh. And this, this makes sense. Um, uh, actually, this is the reality that, the, that Peter understands for the readers here in, in his context and in his day. I mean, he says in verse 4, In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. So they slander you, they, they, they insult you, they persecute you. Why? Because you used to live this way, and you used to be like them, and now you no longer are. And so they're looking at you going, What are you doing, you crazy Jesus freak? You should be still living in the same way that, that we do, and so on. And I mean, I remember going to those drinking parties with you, and you don't do it any longer. And I remember worshiping, like, you know, um, the sun god, and you don't do it anymore. And I remember, like, you know, the orgies we used to attend at the temple, and you don't go there anymore. And that's no word. That word carousing means orgy. So there you go. So they're wondering, why aren't you doing these things? Why aren't you living out the Gentile, Greek, Greco-Roman way of life anymore? And as a result, they're getting slandered. And because of this, then, they're suffering in the flesh. They're suffering in the flesh because they're getting maligned and ridiculed and being persecuted, even though they're doing what is right, just like Jesus did what was right in obeying God's will. So because of their life of obedience, they're suffering. And, but Peter makes the claim, because you're doing this, though, you have ceased from sin. Because you have two ways to live, and you've chosen not to live this lifestyle out. And this makes sense too because all they would, all, this is crazy for a person to even go down this path. If you, wanted to end this, if you wanted to end the suffering and you wanted to end the hostility towards you, all you would have to do is go back into the old way of life and it would stop. 
you want to belong to the world and them to love you, you just stop obeying the Lord and go back into that old way of life and you'll be accepted, no problem. But these people wouldn't. This is what I love this verse here. He says, they are surprised. They are surprised that you've had this time to go back to that way of life and you haven't. <laughs> you've been continuing to, uh, to obey the Lord in these things. But again, all you have to do is all you have to do to end the mistreatment is to go back into the old way of life and it would stop. And the one who, can, one who obeys the Lord in this way has ceased from sin. Now at times it must have been hard for these Christians back then to live in this context and face these realities. But Peter provides them with assurance that justice will be served for the way they're treated. And we actually pick this up in verse 5 and 6. He says, But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. When, when he talks here about um, these people being uh, judged, uh, or sort of like God judges the living and the dead. I don't think it's a description of a believer and an unbeliever. So often in the Bible, like a reference to a living is the eternal, the ones who live eternally, who belong to God, and the dead is a, it's just a, uh, a reference to people who are unrighteous or unbelievers. I think this is actually a description of a state, a description of the two states of an unbeliever. And the reason is, is the word they. I mean, beginning in verse 4, he says, uh, they are surprised that you do not run with them. And they malign you. And then he says, but they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. So unbelievers who are dead, who used to malign, they're going to judge, be judged. And those who um, are alive today and they're criticizing you, when they eventually die, they will be judged as well. So a couple key observations here. Is that first one is that the mistreatment of believers doesn't go unnoticed by the Lord. And it doesn't go unpunished either. So as Christians, we can take refuge in knowing that God is keeping records of the wrongs being done to us, and those people will have to give a reckoning and an account one day. And it won't go well for them, and justice will be served. The second thing I want to say, point out about this is that eternal life is a reality for all people. These unbelieving people will be, even though they're um, dead, it says they will be judged. So it's not a physical death he's referring to, because how can you be physically dead and judged? It's a reference to the spiritually dead. So even though they're spiritually dead and they've lost their life in the physical way, they are still living, but they're dead because they won't be part of God's kingdom and they'll fall under his judgment. So the, basically, unbelievers, for the way they treat Christians, will spend an eternity paying back God for what is due and what they've done. And there's a, there's a portion in the scripture that's very interesting in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. I think it's worth reading here. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from those presents earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, so the same reference, the spiritually dead, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Well, some of the deeds will be the way they mistreat Christian people. <clears throat> and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, 
and death in Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds again. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. A pretty vivid picture of the unbelievers at the judgment of God. Part of it will be the way they treat you and I as Christian people. So some of you are probably thinking or maybe even hoping that I'm done now because I've done six verses in about ten minutes. Well, you know me, you don't get off that easy and that quickly. I think it's important to discuss a topic that pops up in these verses that we've never spoken about in this church before. It's this idea, it's continuing on from this idea of ceasing from sin. As it raises another important question that's often debated in Christian circles. And it surrounds the notion of what God's expectations of are you and I in regards to sin. So you may have heard something like this, and, or even currently hold this belief now, that it's impossible for Christians to be sinless. It's impossible for you and I to be sinless. Furthermore, there's no way God even expects you to be sinless. I mean, He knows that you're all disobedient suckers, and so He's got no expectations for you, and you can basically, He just sort of waits for you to fall, and uh, He just deals with it when it happens. But is this really what the Scripture says about that? Is that really God's view of His expectations of us? I'd like to take a look at this now in detail with you. I'm going to begin in Matthew 5, verses 44 to 48. This is Jesus speaking. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now watch this. Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The key to this verse is found in those two simple words, just as. There's a comparison made between you and I and what God's expectations are of us in relationship to what God's standard of righteousness and sinlessness. Notice here, it's not a suggestion that you try to be perfect. <laughs> it's not telling you that you should just give it a good shot and see where the chips fall. He's not making, he doesn't say, make it your ambition to be this way. He's not saying that uh, it's something you just to simply strive for. It's a clear command and an expectation that we are to be like Him in this way. Now this is really important, especially for those who believe that it is impossible for us to stop sinning as believers. And the idea that God would never expect us to do this anyway. But here's the thing, church. If we have this belief, it's a hard time for us to reconcile this verse here. Furthermore, it's kind of unfair for God, don't you think, to ask us to do something that He knew we couldn't do? Like, imagine going up to my five-year-old and saying, uh, Jace, I want you to, like, uh, you know, shovel that uh, driveway that's got, like, you know, two feet of snow. 
right? And I expect you to do that. I mean, I can't turn around and then get mad at him if he, if, 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 uh, if he can't accomplish that feat, right? I'm only going to ask him to do something if I think he can do something and I expect him to do it. So if I do the driveway and I just ask him to maybe like, you know, take a, a broom and sweep, sweep off the stairs after I'm done, that's a different kind of a command and a different type of expectation because that's something he could do at his age and his size. So it is kind of fair for Jesus to ask us to be perfect if he knew that would honor God, if he didn't, act, if he didn't actually believe it was possible. It's a pretty cruel game to play with you and I. So I'm guessing, knowing a lot of your personalities, this is the advantage of having a small church, that you have a lot of questions going through your head right now. And you're thinking, what in the world are you talking about? I've never heard anything like this, potentially, and uh, how does this even apply to my life? I'm glad you're thinking those questions, because I'm going to deal with those right now. <laughs> Let me just say what he is not saying, first of all. He's not saying that if you, to be fully obedient or to be fully sinless is to be free from temptation. Free from temptation. As believers, temptation will always be part of your life. It'll never go away. Temptation, though, in and of itself is not sin. If it were the case, then Jesus was a sinner. And if he was a sinner, you and I are not going to glory because there was no substitutionary atonement. No payment for our sin. So temptation itself is not a sin. Jesus, remember, was tempted himself for 40 days in the wilderness as other, day, other times in his three-year ministry. right? And God still said you're the perfect substitute for sin. I want to speak to you young people, especially in here, even though I don't see many today, which is too bad. Okay. <laughs> right. We got one young 40-year-old. Yeah, good. Yeah. But I do want to say this. So actually, you know, we had this idea, especially for like, like, you know, I'm thinking of even the teenagers. A lot of people in the church think that because they're attracted to the opposite sex and have a desire for them, they must be sinning. So you see a beautiful, you're a, you're a young man and you see a beautiful girl, at least in your eyes she's beautiful, you know, they always say beauty's not a beholder. So she's beautiful to you and you start thinking about her, her beauty and, they think, and then you think, oh my goodness, I must have sinned, God must look down upon me. No, he doesn't. Vice versa, you're a young girl and you notice a, a man that you find it very attractive um, and you start thinking about him in terms of like his, his looks and his, and his uh, you admire him in different character traits, that is not sin. That's not sin. You're allowed to notice those things. Same in marriage. You're allowed, you can notice the beauty of another person. You can notice the beauty of another person. That is no problem to God. It's what you do with that temptation and when, that, that makes it, well, it's what you do with that temptation when it can potentially cross the line with the Lord. But that's another sermon, because I don't have time to deal with that. We'd probably have it in the dialogue, potentially, but we'll see. We'll see. But temptation in itself is not a sin. And I think a lot of us in the Christian life, we actually make temptation a sin. And we start beating ourselves up, and it's not. It's not. Second thing it's not, is an obedience that is independent from Christ. 
In John 15, verse 4, Jesus says this, As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. It's only through dependence on Jesus Christ that you can fully obey God's commands for your lives. It's the only way. Truth doesn't, isn't found in yourself. Truth is an external source that comes to you. So you can't, like, you have to have God's truth in you to know how to obey His truth. But you need His presence in your life to even follow through anyway. So obedience, um, being sin, uh, sorry, being perfect is not an obedience that's independent of the Lord. You're fully dependent in the Christian life on Him and His truth to live that life. Third, it's not a perfectly arrived state or destination. You don't one day wake up and go, I'm there, I've arrived. You don't, that never happens, right? You don't ever get to a place where the potential to sin will never be there in your life again. That will never exist. That potential will always be there. And that, des- that, that desire, although can be removed at some points in your life in certain areas, is never going to be completely uh, removed. There's always going to be this temptation to go there. So it's not like you can promise anybody, you know, in six months from now, you're going to be at this perfectly arrived state, and just so you know, you can look forward to that. That is not what this is either. So what are we talking about? What's God's expectation? What are we talking about here? It's a growing obedience in our walk with the Lord that has no limit. It's walking with the Lord in an obedient way that has no limit in how far you can go. There's no scripture that puts a limit on how long you can go without sinning. Can you think of one? What, like, do you, is it in Ephesians 4, verse 32 that says this? You're not to gossip, but uh, just so you know, the longest person ever has gone in history is 72 hours and 14 minutes. So just so you know, like, good luck. It doesn't say in, in Galatians, say, chapter 5, you know... Uh, you know, you're, never, you're not to tell a lie, but just so you know, the longest anyone's ever gone is 63 days, 4, four minutes and 5 seconds. You know, I'm being obviously a, a dork for a reason there, right? But there's no scripture that ever puts a limit on how long you can go without sinning. Nor does scripture ever put a limitation in the areas in which you won't sin. He doesn't say that, Jesus never says this, you know, it's possible not to lose your temper, but it's not possible not to steal. Or vice versa, you know. Or, you know what, stopping lying is pretty easy, but lust, forget it, just give up right now. If that were the case, church, there would be no point in prayer. There would be no point. Because someone said, if you wanted to pray for somebody in an area of weakness, and they told you your weakness, you'd have to say this, well, we can't really pray for those areas because Jesus won't actually show up and bring healing in those areas to the fullness of degree that you need. Because it's, he makes it clear in Scripture that only these categories are impossible to overcome. Or, good luck, you're only going to last an hour anyway. None of that stuff is in there, church. And the thing, it is possible to go without sinning for the rest of your life in particular areas of your life when you walk with the Lord. The context makes this clear in verse 3 in our passage. 
time has passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued these uh, issues. And he says, they're surprised that you do not run with them. You don't do it. You used to do it. You used to worship the idols. You don't do it at all anymore. You used to be drunk all the time. You don't do that anymore. You used to show up at orgies at the temple. You're not there anymore. <laughs> There's categories in which they found complete freedom in their lives. You know what? It's true in my life. I was never a struggling alcoholic. I would get drunk maybe two, three times a year. I haven't been drunk since the day I've been saved. I haven't been drunk. If I have, I, uh, in another category, I can't remember. That's how long it's been, but I'm pretty sure I've never used the Lord's name once since I became a Christian. I was the guy that would say Jesus Christ to basically finish all my sentences. In every context of every conversation I had, I don't think I've used his name in a, in a derogatory way since the day I was saved. So in two areas of the Christian life, I've been perfect. Not because of my own strength, not because I'm, like I've got anything to offer, because of redemption and the forgiveness I've been given. And I'm sure if I were to ask you about certain areas in your life, you'd say, yeah, I have not gone back to that area of life since the day I became a Christian. Now I get it, there are other areas where that, that's not true. And that's not been the case. But here's the thing, I believe fully that the more you and I mature in these areas, grow in our understanding of the Word of God, and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, there will be permanent victory in those areas. You have to believe that as a Christian. <laughs> you have to. You can have permanent victory in these areas. If this isn't true, Jesus can't help us, and there's no chance of stopping, and there's no point in prayer. And one more thing just to think about. You know, when we think often that God can't expect us to be perfect in our obedience, you know, there's no other relationship that we're involved in that we don't expect that from others. Think about that. You expect that in all your relationships, perfection, in the way you're treated. In marriage, do you expect partial or full relational obedience from each other in terms of how you treat one another? I already know the answer to that. The answer is yes. Here's why. When you're mistreated, how long does it take you before you let the other person know? <laughs> doesn't take you long usually to let them know that that wasn't fair. If your partner had treated you well for 30 days straight and had a really bad day, would you overlook that day? Doubt it. You should because the Lord tells you to, but I, or, but I doubt it. Here's the thing, it doesn't matter how long of a track record you have with your spouse, you'll still let them know when things go poorly. But yet, but you expect relational perfection in marriage. You expect it. You may not get it, but you expect it. How about in your kids? As parents, do you expect full or partial obedience when you instruct your children? If you expect partial, how much is acceptable to you? If you expect partial, then you have no right disciplining them when they're uncompliant. You can't discipline them. Because if the kid comes up to you and says, but mom and dad, you've, had a, you've got a substandard 
uh, uh, set of rules here because uh, you've allowed me to be, uh, you want me good here, but you don't really care here, so I sinned in this area, so you don't have the right to even get mad at me because you've made this allowance in my life. We don't do that. We expect 100% compliance from our kids. We do. Now, we don't get it, but that's not what we expect. How about friendships? You never enter into a friendship going, how much can I hurt you before you and I are no longer friends anymore? You expect me as your friend, and I expect you as my friend to treat me well and you me well every time we interact. We expect it. And when we don't, we have different ways emotionally of handling those hurts, and we have to then look to the Lord in terms of how to reconcile those hurts, because there's proper ways to do so. But again, so you see in all your relationships, you want those things yourself. So why, when you're created in the image of God, would He turn around and not expect those things from you as well? So you might be thinking, okay, I get it, Andrew, you made your point. So God does expect me to be perfect, sinless, and perfectly obedient. But what do I do then if I do sin? (laughs) What do I do when I do? What then? Does He still accept me? Of course He does. Of course He does. 1 John 2, 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. So my expectation is you don't do this. That's what I want as a Christian. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And later on in verse 9, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. I think in the context there, that's not talking about how to enter into salvation. That is how you maintain the relationship with the Lord. That's how we have communion. We're having communion next week. We have communion. We spend time confessing sin before we come up because we know that there are still sins in our lives. But I can be honest, again, this is like, you know, there, there can be times, believe it or not, there might be a time when you come up for communion and the Lord brings nothing to mind and there's no sin to confess. Because for 30 days, you, you literally have lived a sin-free life in the areas that God cares about. It's possible. It's possible. It has to be possible. Otherwise, again, you can't provide hope to the alcoholic. The person whose gossip has no chance of victory. The person who's a constant liar will, can never be free of lies. And this is not true. It's not true. <clears throat> yeah, so again, what do we do? What happens when we do sin? There's still forgiveness found in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll give you four lessons to finish off the passage today. The first one is this. God will judge non-Christians for their mistreatment of Christian people. God will judge non-Christians for their mistreatment of Christians. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5-9 All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you, and will give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire and with his powerful angels. 
He will punish those who do not know God and not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Talk about strong words. God is noticing when we get mistreated. He notices. But remember this. Remember last week's sermon. He is, why doesn't he take those people out? Because he loves them. He loves them. He's, remember, he's patient, not wanting none to come to, per, to perish, but all to come to repentance. He's patient with them, just like he was patient with you and I before we were Christian people. We could have been taken out a long time ago, and God patiently waited for us to come to repentance. So he sees them the same way he see, saw you in the past. So justice will be served, but his first, that's his second choice. His first choice is to bring these people into salvation to know the Lord. He's patient and loves, he loves them. The cross is for them too. Second lesson. Evidence that a believer has ceased from sin will be seen in one's continued commitment to Jesus Christ despite the reality of suffering. So how do you know when someone ceases from sin? They go on obeying the Lord knowing that suffering is going to continue. Because they're choosing to live out, they're choosing to live their lives for God even though they know all it would take is to abandon that faith and the suffering would stop. But because of the love for the Lord and their allegiance to Him, they continue to persevere, even though they, uh, based on past experiences, present realities, and what future might come to them. And they will not give up. Will not give up. You'll know if you cease from sin, if you do not compromise in your faith, and you are committed to receiving ridicule, rejection, and persecution for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. He suffered unjustly, even though he did what was right and felt it was right within God's will. And we are armed with the same purpose if we live out that exact same life in our lives as well. Three. Full obedience, a.k.a. being perfect. To be perfect is not about being free from temptation, nor does an arrived state, nor is it an arrived state, but is about full dependence on Jesus Christ. To be fully perfect or fully obedient, you have to depend on the Lord. But it won't mean that you're free from temptation or that you've come to some arrived state. There's always the potential for you to sin. But you can't do it without a reliance on Him and the power of the Holy Spirit. You won't do it. And finally, fourth, there is no limit to the obedience of a Christian to the ways of God, but grace is available if we do sin. There is no limit to the obedience of a Christian to the ways of God, but grace is available if we do sin. When God says, I want you to be perfect, or Jesus says in, the, in the Matthew, you should be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect, He means it. It's not a suggestion. He means it. There's nowhere in the scriptures where Jesus ever asks for partial obedience to his commands. And no New Testament writer ever expects partial obedience to any of his commands. Again, can, will we be victorious in every single area of life? I think the potential is there for it. It may be unlikely, 
but yet at the same time, you can't say that you haven't had victories in certain areas of life. You've been free completely in certain areas of life that you used to do. I know you have, because I have. And if you, ha if you haven't yet, because you're still new to the faith, there's hope. There's hope, and that'll come with Christian maturity and a reliance on knowing the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to bring that to remembrance of your mind so that you know how to behave and act in the moments you get tempted and so on. There is a lot to be said, and I'm very curious about which direction this thing's going to fly in the dialogue. <laughs>